Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Because I am at a total loss of words for how many people I know that do not know where the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid came from, I'm going to tell you about Jim Jones. Don't drink the Kool-Aid means be careful, don't believe everything they say, don't follow them basically. And that is because a crazy socialist cult leader part convinced and part forced over 900 people to drink cyanide laced flavor aid, which is the generic of Kool-Aid and a mass suicide over 900 people. We're talking men, women, children, elderly people, I believe even pets that were around all died together per the orders of their leader, Jim Jones. And yes, they did know it was cyanide laced Kool-Aid. It was not an accidental poisoning. You would think if it was going to be their final drink, they'd get the fucking name brand one, not that flavor aid bullshit. Jim Jones was a poor boy from Indiana who slowly became a preacher and then grew his own following. After gaining a following and doing some traveling ministry, Jones started expanding. To understand what's going on politically, Jim Jones started small in the 1950s, and he expanded through the 60s and 70s, and then things came to a close in 1978. So this whole ordeal was almost 30 years in the making for the People's Temple. And so I'm going to break down now how this fake healing, small, hokey, fake prophecy, fake Reverend Jones went from a small town boy in Indiana to a paranoid cult leader in Guyana and basically how he used religion to manipulate and control people until he no longer had to do it and he dropped it all together and just moved straight on to socialism. So let's get started with his early years and how this all progressed. Jim Jones is actually from Indiana and his mom had married a man older than her. This is back in like, you know, the 1920s older than her, but who wasn't in the greatest health, but he came from a really wealthy family. And so I think she thought he was wealthy himself, but after they got married, she found out that no, he's not actually wealthy. Just his family is. And honestly, that did not go over very well with her. But the show went on. They had Jim Jones in May of 1931, and they ended up living in Lynn, Indiana, in a home that Jim Jones's father's family would basically cover whatever they couldn't cover of the bills. And his mom stayed home with him until he was school age, and then she went to work. And his dad stayed home on, I believe he was on like a very low wage disability. He maybe pulled like $35 a month or something on it. Um, he'd had a really bad mental illness and this is a time when mental illness was heavily frowned upon. So they actually just let people believe he was an alcoholic, despite the fact that they lived in a dry County. A dry County is a County in which you cannot serve or sell liquor anytime, anywhere, any day. Anyway, Jim Jones had kind of a strange childhood. His family was the only family that really didn't go to church or belong to a church home. And his mom was rather unpleasant. In fact, people didn't really play at Jim Jones's house. It was a very cold, uninviting atmosphere. And he wasn't even allowed home when his mom wasn't there anyway. So to me, that's kind of weird. 
Jim Jones was a strange kid. He was known to have funerals for animals. And I don't think that he killed the animals. I think that they were like roadkill or died of natural causes. But he would hold little funeral services for them. He originally wanted to be a pilot until he was invited to church. And once he was invited to church by a woman in his town, he went to a Methodist church. And from there, he started church hopping and kind of got this thing about wanting to be a preacher when he was a boy. So that started really young. Jim Jones became, of course, the extreme of it. Like he would always wear what this small town would consider their Sunday best clothes and carry around a Bible. And he really went with it. Another weird thing about Jim Jones is he was totally obsessed with sex. He would always talk about sex um, to people. He would describe what sex was to younger children, just like had this weird obsession with it. At school, he would do this weird thing where if you came up and talked to him, like in between classes, he would totally act like nobody was talking to him. He would just ignore you, which to me is so strange. And despite this, the one thing that could be said about Jim was that he was a great conversationalist. I personally can't think of a single thing I'd talk to this dude about based off everything I just told you about him, especially in high school, but okay. Another thing about him is he'd always been really good at organizing things. So when he was 14, all by himself, he organized an entire baseball league between him and his surrounding towns. He got funding, donations, and managed a team himself, even driving them to their own games at just 14. So that kind of covers the little bit I could find about his childhood. It was his senior year of high school whenever he decided he wanted to be a pastor either into his senior year or after he had just graduated his senior year that he actually met his wife, Marcelina. And she is a really pivotal part of the people's temple. They refer to her as mother and Jim father. But before all of that, they met in 1948. She was a nursing student still in high school. And Jim was just working as an elderly at the time. And they fell in love. Marcelina dumped her whole plan of going away to finish nursing school and instead married Jim Jones, June of 1949. He was 17, and I want to say she was a couple years younger than him. After they got married, it wasn't long before Jim started to waver in his belief in God, and he struggled really greatly with, if there's an all-loving God, why is the world so ugly? And sometimes he would even go as far as to denounce God, even to Marcelina, and that really bothered her because she really liked that they were both Christians and going to have this like Christian home. But then Jim began wanting to try different churches. And of course she's like, yes, he's back in. So they start going to all kinds of churches, like all kinds of churches. And Jim Jones much later alludes to the fact that he was never actually a believer or was really that into religion, but he knew religion was a way to like reach people So he kind of began studying religion in churches and how they operated. So in 1952, he becomes a student pastor. And it's not even a year later that people are calling him Reverend Jones. He would preach to the congregation and then he expanded into revivals. So revivals are like traveling ministries that set up these tents and do crazy healings. 
making the lame walk, blind see, very staged and planned diseases and healings typically, but it was a very loud, charismatic environment and Jones thrived in this. He began joining the revival circuit and actually preaching and doing healings and he was really good at it because, because he would do things like he would eavesdrop at the beginning and find out everything he could about people while they were talking. And then during the service, he'd pretend like God was giving him a vision or this information and he would use it to manipulate the people in the crowd. I mean, he was a fraud, but what's really weird is like most religious frauds, he wasn't after money in the way that we're used to. So there's varying reasons of why Jim Jones was let go of this church that he was a reverend at in 1954, but regardless the fun just started. He decides in 1954 when he's let go that he is going to establish his own church and community outreach programs. And you know what? To drum up, he decided he is going to hit the revival circuits and he's going to hit them hard and he was fucking good at it. He amps it up. He gets people that he knows to stage fake healings. And he even goes as far to use chicken parts as extracted tumors as proof of his healings. Jones convinces his followers, he's got a very small group of them from this church he started, and he convinces them that they have to lie and stretch the truth and pretend to be healed because it's all for a good cause. Like, you know, it, the the means justify the end here. And they need more members and more donations so that they can do more good works. You see how this is kind of where this is going? And so they slowly made everything they did to keep community outreach going and draw in more members and funding. And the really, really crazy thing, though, is most of the money really did go to good community outreaches and to the cause of the People's Temple. They did rehabilitation programs, food, clothing. They once grew large enough and they created an elderly care center. But most of the people joined the People Temple and they actually had to sign over or I'm sure it was heavily suggested. They didn't have to. They needed to sign over basically all of their belongings, every you know, the deed to their house, any cars they had, all of their possessions. This is how they would do their community outreach. This is how they funded it. And they would also, though, take in homeless people, place them into housing that the People's Temple bought or possibly members gave their deed over for to join. And they would place homeless people needing a place in these houses and kind of coerce them into joining the people's temple. They'd give them all the necessities that they needed and a really small amount, like $5 a week or something, which was more back then, though. They even would permit them to finish schooling or go to college and the people's temple would pay for it all. But in return, they needed to work for the organization to earn their keep. And that's the catch. That is how he grew the following. Remember, the Lord said, if you feed them, they'll come. <laughs> so Jim Jones relied heavily on using modern Christianity in the early years. They did a lot of community outreach and slowly created a very socialist church and made them paranoid of outsiders. Just so you know, once the church began to expand into hundreds and then thousands of people and they had these like work programs and such, that is when it became round-the-clock work for the people's temple and the way this worked was the more you do the better you're doing right like 
and sleep deprivation comes into effect and group manipulation comes into effect because they'd say like they would be really proud to say, oh my gosh, I only slept two hours because by the time I got done at work and then I went home and then I did the people's temple, you know, outreach that I'm supposed to do, whatever my volunteer work is that day. Oh man, by the time I did that and went home, I only got like three hours of sleep and they would be really proud of all the work they did. I think it's important that we clarify something very, very pertinent to this. The members of the People's Temple did truly believe that Jen Jones had godlike powers. He manipulated them. Even the members that helped him stage fake healings thoroughly believed in his powers of healing. He would also tell his congregation like he could predict danger coming. But if nothing happened, it was because of his almighty warning. And if something did happen, it proved he was right. I think he relied heavily on people believing he had some sort of knowledge or power from God. And he would even send out letters to his congregation and people really believed that they were in his special like prayers and daily meditations. And they would do these special offerings. Churches love special offerings. And essentially they thought that, I don't know, if they pitched in more money, especially people who received these letters, that Jim Jones would pray even harder for them during his daily meditations. And he would also do what is called the blessed penny. And any member who requested one could get one. And it was just a penny that Jim Jones blessed and would either send out during congregation or they would mail them out. This is just an example of the many way Jim Jones had fooled his followers. And honestly, it worked. They thought he was a godly man and he was doing all this amazing outreach anyway. So why wouldn't they want to be part of the cause? The People's Temple ultimately grew to three locations in California. So we got L.A., San Francisco, and Ukiah. Dude, shit always happens in Modesto and Ukiah. I don't know what the hell's up with that place. Honestly, the People's Temple was working. Jim Jones wasn't that weird in the beginning. Um, he was just kind of using religion to build a group of people. And like I said, they genuinely did do a lot of community outreach. And because of all the good, people wanted to do more for the cause. Like they would work full time, give all their money to the church, volunteer, and dedicate all their spare time to the People's Temple. It was heavily frowned upon to do any leisurely activities, movies, anything really that did not pertain to the People's Temple or the cause. Now, a lot of members signed over their entire checks and even all of their worldly possessions. The church would sell all the valuables and put the money away to fund the cause. Over time, they genuinely did create a self-sustaining society and they did want to get more people to do this, to be more economic and to work together in a self-sustaining community, right? It sounds perfect. Isn't that like the ideal, but like most self-sustaining communities, it had to get really weird eventually, right? So first, Jim Jones only opened half of his sermons to the public, and some were still open only to members. And he began talking about like God and normal things to talk about at church in his public sermons. And in his private sermons, he would say things that were totally hypocritical to the Bible. And he would denounce the Bible. And he would explain that it was just a means to connect to people. Members totally ate this shit up. They referred to him as the father and thought whatever he wanted was best. So when he spoke of God and Christianity in the traditional sense on his open sermons, 
his followers knew it was because he had to contradict himself to make the members comfortable, the people who weren't actually a part of the people's temple, and that it just had to be done. It's okay to manipulate people. So this is seriously how it worked. And in private meetings, he started to sprinkle in that like outsiders couldn't be trusted and created this like very us versus them environment. That us versus them shit works really well in cults. So it's getting real, y'all. It's getting real. One of the things that kind of shifted was they started having what is called catharsis meetings. And that is where members who had done anything inappropriate could basically get called out in front of the entire organization in hopes that the participant would likely repent and change this behavior. This, like all things in a cult, escalated. So at first they were just reprimanded and I'm sure there was a slight humiliation factor, but then it turned into like verbal abuse and even corporal punishments in front of everyone. And it was painted as a way to offer constructive criticism, but I would say this is manipulating a mass group of people. Then he started pushing the agenda that the government was coming after them, and he did not want anyone wasting any time with anything outside of the temple, even fraternizing with other people or talking about things that didn't even have to do with the temple. And this is slating them from the outside world. He then declares people who are not already married are to abstain from sex and dating because it is a distraction from the ultimate cause. He then suggests everybody is actually homosexual. Okay, nothing about that makes sense to me in the slightest. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume he dabbled in drugs. There's a lot of insinuation that it was believed he dabbled in drugs, but I'm just going to go ahead and say he dabbled in drugs. And the most controlling tactic he had was to insist that members turn each other in if they ever spoke about wanting to leave the temple. And like people wanted to turn each other in, like to prove their loyalty. So shit's getting really weird. And supposedly all this started in 1969. That was when the first out of character thing about Jim Jones emerged. Jim and Marcelina had been married for 20 years at this point, but Marcelina had a really bad back problem. And with the birth of her last son, her back pain became almost unbearable and it made sex pretty much impossible. And Jim Jones had always been obsessed with sex. So he obviously had to find a mistress and he chose another temple member like, ew, here we go, molester cult leader. And he went after a woman named Carolyn. Carolyn had just joined the church with her husband, Larry, a year before in 1968. And my God, the woman was obsessed with Jim Jones. Like she didn't just drink the Kool-Aid, she ate the shit, okay? So Jim Jones had a member explain that Marcelina was sick and he needed a woman emotionally and sexually available. And you know what? She was like, Okay, yeah, let's do it. So she and Larry actually got divorced. And Larry wasn't even upset that they got divorced. And Jim Jones took his wife to be his mistress. He actually remained in the church. And his faith in Jim Jones grew stronger. And you will hear about him at the end of this. She becomes a regular in Jim Jones' life, this Carolyn lady. And she wasn't just some chick he screwed in the broom closet. His wife knew about it. And he actually like divided his time between Carolyn and Marcelina. So it's almost like being in a a little polygamous group. So we've covered some things to kind of understand the progression and the direction of the pig bulls temple. We went from radical modern Christianity doing revivals to a more socialist controlled cult like movement. 
I want to mention it was never described or insinuated that Jim Jones used the people for excessive self gain. At most, I think he just had a slightly better private living space and maybe a few more luxuries like a better AC unit when they were in Guyana and things like that. But honestly, it was mostly to maintain and water this socialist group from what I understand. Remember, during the 60s, members who joined, joined for a church, not a socialist movement, and they were manipulated and brought to the point that they got. In the book, The Road to Jonestown, it says that Jim Jones began using hard drugs around 1971, tranquilizers, amphetamines, pills, and this is where the obsession with the government watching them comes into play, which is so important because it's basically what leads to the suicide. So Jim becomes extremely paranoid and everyone was to report anything suspicious with anyone. So he's creating almost like a toxic paranoid environment and he is hitting it hard. Like he makes sure he has bodyguards at all time. He starts um, stepping outside of his relationship with Carolyn and Marcelina and having sex with multiple women in the group. I mean, he even starts having casual sex with a few men in the group and people start to leave and guess what? A few of those people had agreed to be interviewed. So slowly these newspaper articles are coming out about Jim Jones and the people's temple. And Jim Jones gets like extremely paranoid because don't forget he's doing drugs. And he's like, I got to get the fuck out of here. So in 1973, things got into like way left field. The only way to have this amazing utopian self-sustaining peace on earth was going to happen if they leave the United States and the government was out to get them, Jim said. So they needed to go to like another country. At first they looked at Russia, but somebody suggested South America and they ended up in Guyana, South America on October 8th, 1973. The board, whoever the fuck the People's Temple board members are, um, they ended up voting on Guyana. And it was March 1974. Five months later, they were able to start working on this property. Guyana government agreed to have some temporary housing established for them to start with. And so that's exactly what happened. It was like a dozen of them were dropped off with these uh, Guyana provided housing. And then they're just to clear up the jungle and get things rolling. Don't laugh. They named the Guyana retreat community, whatever, uh, Jonestown, because nothing screams cult louder than naming your utopia after your leader. But regardless, they get the road cleared and they get this project up and running. They had farming land, housing, outdoor pavilion and a daycare, a medical center. Like it wasn't too shabby. It was definitely um, close to third world country living, but he gets like 920 people to actually go to Jonestown. In fact, more people wanted to come. Members wanted to go there. The point of the mission was to prove that a socialist community was like heaven on earth. The limited space is the only thing that stopped more members from going to Jonestown. So despite Jim Jones and his loyal followers making it sound like Jonestown was perfect, relatives were very concerned and writing to government officials all the time that their family members were basically stuck in Guyana. They hadn't been able to communicate with them since they left. They're seeing articles about Jim Jones and the People's Temple and members who had left and they think maybe that's why they ran away to Guyana and they're just really worried and need somebody to investigate what's going on. 
because when groups like the People's Temple close off to the outside world, relatives often get shut out too of what's really going on, and it's really scary. And you know what? It was They were right to be concerned because it costs a lot of money to maintain almost like a fucking thousand people in a third world country. And Jim Jones originally wanted like 25,000 acres, and the Guyana government was like, okay, let's settle on 3,000. <laughs> Now, there was an airstrip nearby, but the farming was a total fucking bust. They did not know how to work the land. They they weren't familiar with what crops to grow there. And so they actually had to buy most food and supplies and have it delivered. And they were running out of money. They could hardly sustain it. They couldn't afford anywhere near the protein-packed food that they needed, especially for the hot and labor-intensive jobs that they were doing. And they were in uncomfortably cramped housing. A lot of the adult members had small children. And so this really sounds like a bad camping trip that is being drug out. They have limited water to shower. So showers are only like two minutes to rinse off. And you got to keep your mouth shut because the water can make you really sick. No members really had communication with the outside world. Remember, this is 1974, so there's no cell phones, not internet out there in Guyana to get a hold of anyone. And they relied heavily on mail, but all of their incoming and outgoing mail is read by members of the People Temple. The only news that they're receiving is what Jones is interpreting of the newspapers and of the radio and he's using an intercom system so that you can literally hear anything Jim wanted you to over this set of loudspeakers that reached everywhere in the Guyana facility. So he would go on and on and on about these like paranoid drug convoluted versions of current events and that typically ended with somehow everyone's out to get them. He created a very us versus them paranoia, and he urged members to still come forward with anyone they knew who wanted to leave or betray Jonestown. He went as far to say that he had members planted amongst them, and if they did not turn those people in, he would, you know, dun, dun, dun. I don't know. I don't know what he said. He'd probably do like um, the public humiliation thing where he brings them up there and like whoops their ass or something. So... I don't know what would happen if you think if you wanted to leave. I think they would just shame and manipulate you out of it. But he had some kind of control where people did not want to leave. And it was scary to tell anybody if you wanted to leave. Because, I mean, we're talking husbands turning in wives, aunts, uncles, cousins, best friends, long-term relationships and friendships who would literally turn on each other because they had such a loyalty to Jim Jones. Well... Remember all the letters that the family members were sending to government officials? They were getting looked at, and a congressman named Leo Ryan wanted to actually go visit Jim Jones in Jonestown. And him and a media team actually reached out to them, and holy shit, Jim Jones agreed. And so they went to Guyana. Simultaneously, Jim Jones starts doing something that would totally scare me if I had to stay at that compound. He would sound alarms throughout the loudspeakers and get everyone to the pavilion. And sometimes he would do this like in the middle of the night and he would lie and say that there was something government related happening and that there was going to be a takeover and they were better off to die. And one time he actually got all of them to drink some Kool-Aid, I mean flavor aid. And after everyone drank it, he was like, okay, I know that I said we needed to drink all of this and die, but it's not actually poison. 
So he kind of practiced this idea of fire drilling a mass suicide. So Jim is basically preparing his congregation for the governor coming and he is creating this whole environment of fear and that it's us versus them and that the government's going to come take away their children and ruin Jonestown. And it worked like people believed them. So it's November 1978 when the governor and his media team arrives and supposedly Jonestown like put on a show. They made the best meals the whole day. They weren't eating their regular commodity food. They were eating special delicious meals that were not normally fed, but on special occasions. Typically they'd have to eat like only two meals a day, oatmeal, peanut butter sandwiches, things like that. And everyone was in an upbeat mood. They're happy. They're singing. They're dancing. They're giving tours of the facility. Um, The visitors did think that it was crowded, but overall, everyone seemed really happy and to be doing their own thing and trying to prove that socialism was a way to thrive. And the congressman's team of people interviewed members all throughout the day. And like I said, everything seemed fine and happy. There was no hostility. As the day's wrapping up, the visitors get a couple notes, though, from members saying that they wanted to leave Jonestown. But they would not openly stand up and say, hey, I don't want to be here during these interviews. They were clearly afraid or intimidated. So I think the way it unfolded was that the governor and his people went to a town in Guyana to sleep that night. There was no rooms in Jonestown. The next morning, really early, somewhere between 9 to 11 members of the People's Temple actually slipped out into the jungle because they knew that the congressman was there and they were going to go into town and get some help from U.S. officials. In the meantime... The governor go back to Jonestown Saturday morning after they've like dressed and everything and they confronted the situation of people wanting to leave and when they did they got a total whopping of 15 people which really didn't raise that many alarm bells 15 of 900 people wanting to go home um, isn't that big of a deal. And so the governor made arrangements for another plane, and this is when things got wonky. So, like I said, it was 15 members that morning who wanted to leave, but there was actually 11 more that snuck out into the jungle. So it was 26 people, which really isn't that many people either. So arrangements are made for the other plane, and at the same time, a storm's coming in, which is so fucking inconvenient. And so all anyone can do is wait. And... Literally, right as the storm is clearing up, a member tries to attack the congressman who came to visit with a knife. The attacker was stopped, but then then the group of people, the governor and his media team were like, okay, we're getting the fuck out of there. So they load up and they go, they're going to go wait for the plane to land, right? As they all get loaded, um, the visitors and the 15 people wanting to go back to the United States... Somebody jumped on. It was Larry Layton, Carolyn's ex-husband, who had become one of Jim Jones' most loyal followers. And the 15 members that jumped in there were pretty pretty nervous because they were like, why the fuck is Larry on here? Because there's no way that he would leave Jonestown. They knew that was bad. So Jim Jones's initial plan was that Larry would leave with the traders and he was going to kill the pilot of the plane while they were on the plane. And then meanwhile, Jones would send assassins, I guess a group of people he's paying, to kill the governor and his people at the airstrip. So what happened, though, 
was that the governor and his people and these 15 members of the People's Temple pull up to where the planes are going to be loaded. And Jim Jones's assassins immediately open fire on them and kill five. They kill the congressman, Lee O'Ryan, the photographer, Greg Robertson, a cameraman named Bob Brown, and an NBC reporter, Don Harris. Anyone else that was shot was shot by accident and injured and ran into the jungle. It was too dark for any more planes to come, so they literally just had to wait it out that night, anyone who survived. How scary would that be to be like one of those 15 people from the People's Temple who ran off and like all you can do is wait it out through the night and hope to God the assassins don't come back and kill you too. Guyana government was present, but they were not allowed to step in because this was Americans versus Americans and they'd made an agreement not to intervene. Like that's some third world country shit. Larry goes back to the camp, him and the assassins, and Jim Jones makes like a formal announcement that the governor was dead and his basic attitude was like, yes, we got his ass. He's done. Everyone was called together at the pavilion and Jones was talking about this like awesome victory they just had, but this meant it was time. And they needed to end it all before they're torn apart by the government. And this is happening very quickly, guys. Like, flavor aid laced with cyanide is brought forward. These people don't really know what they're at the pavilion about. I think that they are sharing this excitement with Jim Jones because he's convoluted their minds about the government being after them. So they really, some of them do take it as a victory. And syringes filled with this cyanide flavor aid poisoning are are brought forward and they immediately are saying okay you need to bring forward the babies they decide they're first going to squirt this concoction into the baby's mouths and kill them and people are freaking out like children are crying children are being ripped from their mother's arms some children are 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 being brought forward willingly by their families and the whole congregation realizes that they're surrounded by armed guards if they refute or resist they're still moved along by these armed men and it was so fast and so chaotic that a survivor said he realized what exactly was going on and he's like oh my god I gotta find my wife and my baby boy I gotta find my wife and my baby boy and he panics and he goes looking for them and when he locates them he sees that his wife willingly let the nurse give her son the poison and then his wife had already taken the poison and all he can do is sit there with them and hold them while they die until he panicked and was like, I cannot die with these people and ran out into the jungle. Elderly or sick people who could not make it to the pavilion were injected with this poison into their vein. And you know what? The survivors did an interview in in a handful of documentaries about Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And they made it so clear that it was truly madness it was so chaotic some people were sad some people were afraid and some people were totally willing they believed they could make their point in such an ugly world through mass suicide and the truth was they had done their best to create a socialist movement and Jim Jones fucked it up he fucked it up and he wanted everybody to kill themselves and most of them did everyone who did not make it into that jungle died We're talking 300 children were at Jonestown that all died. 600 adults. It's 9 p.m. when the Guyana government lets the United States know that there was some kind of gunfighting at the airport amongst the Americans. 
Of course, the Americans deployed to Guyana and Sunday morning officials lead them to Jonestown. And that is where they realize something happened. People were all over the place. It was a grisly sight. We're talking 900 dead people. And what's crazy is they were already swelling from the heat and humidity. Oh my gosh, they were unrecognizable. The smell was unimaginable. And they were in layers. Like, so you have the small children, and then you have their parents, and then you have anybody else on top of them. We're talking like three layers of people. And U.S. ultimately had to order snow plows to scrape their remains off of the ground. That's how bad of a sight it was. The total death count came out to 918. According to members of the San Francisco Temple, had Jim Jones' son, Stephen, not called them every 30 minutes urging them not to participate in this crazy mass suicide his father was holding, they would have done it. They would have done it. But when he caught wind of what his dad was up to, he did everything he could to stop the madness, which is very heroic because I'm sure it was an awkward position. Despite everything that happened the Sunday following this mass suicide, 30 people showed up to the People's Temple service in the United States. It was ultimately the last service and the end of the People's Temple. And one of the craziest things I want to talk to you guys about about this mass suicide is that Jim Jones did not even drink the Kool-Aid. He shot himself. All in all, the temple had nearly 13 million in assets and accounts. That's 13 million dollars and they're eating fucking oatmeal and drinking flavor aid in Guyana. Anyway, guys, this was a crazy, crazy event. Very heartbreaking. Don't let people manipulate you. All right. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.